This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very interested today to be interviewing Paddy Doherty about his book titled Blood and Bronze, The British Empire and the Sack of Benin, published by Hearst in 2022, which is a really interesting book because on the one hand, it examines a particular instance Um, of British imperialism and quite violent British imperialism in West Africa, Um, but also helps us understand this particular set of events and history within the wider context of British imperialism, specifically in West Africa, but also then the impact and the kind of legacy it's had um, throughout the centuries until today, and brings together current events and history in a really helpful way to kind of add perspective on both aspects um, so I'm really excited to learn more about your work, work and share it with our audience. Welcome to the podcast. Miranda, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, could you please start us off by introducing yourself a bit, your background, and explain why you chose to write this book? Sure, yeah. So I'm uh, trained as, as an historian, particularly as a, a historian of empire. Um, in fact, I studied at Oxford under Professor John Darwin, who I, I would regard as probably the leading uh, imperial historian of his generation, although I'm not uh, completely objective. Um, My first book was The Khyber Pass, which really looked at the, the, the interaction between India and the rest of the world through the Khyber Pass, essentially for the whole of history, um, which was a, a rather grand expansion of my uh, doctoral research, which was into the Northwest frontier. Uh, but then over the years, I became more interested, particularly in Africa, um, and looked at a number of instances of British expansion into Africa. But the particular reason that I, I came to write about the Benin Bronzes and the invasion of the Kingdom of Benin was because of a visit to the British Museum about 15 years ago now, and I went to see them, in fact, for the first time, and I found the museum signage 
be very interesting. I don't know if you've seen the British Museum signage for the Benin Bronzes, but the, of course they don't lie. I mean, it's factual, but it leaves a great deal out. So they admit to the colonial violence behind the presence of the Benin Bronzes in Britain, but they don't then go on to explain explain that or to follow the implications of that in terms of what it means for uh, you know the repatriation debate and so on. So I then went to look more into uh, the Benin Bronzes and I was really shocked to find that there wasn't readily available a an authoritative history of the invasion of Benin. So I decided that I would write it. And it, it took me some years to get around to doing it, but um, that, that was how Blood and Bronze came about. That's, um, I think that's a good introduction because it kind of brings us into uh, some of the questions that I'm going to be asking you about. Um, and first off is kind of about this process, right? The, I'm assuming that one of the reasons that this book took a while to research um, is because of something that you actually discuss in the book that it's really hard to research this history, given that we kind of only have the writings of one side of the conflict. And that particular side has had a lot of interests in making sure that theirs is the only side that goes forward. So how do you kind of deal with that from a methodological point of view? Yes, that that was a a particular challenge, yeah. I mean, just a side note, it, it was actually more that I was distracted by other things in my life and going off and doing some rather quixotic projects that um, took took the time. But when I did come to uh, focus on this, you're right, of course, in that the the British side is easy to access. That's not to say that it has often been accessed. I mean, I would say the materials in the National Archives are somewhat neglected. I mean, they're there and readily available. Of course, there's a multitude of uh, documents from the Foreign Office and the Admiralty and and so on uh, just sitting there. But, of course, I would say they have been rather neglected. But, yes, of course, the the biggest challenge is in um, recovering or, or recreating the Benin side, given that Benin, like many other uh, areas in Africa at this time uh, in the the late 19th century, was a pre-literate society, of course, had no no written records, no publishing cultures, and so on. And that means that there are only a handful of ways into the Benin side. Uh, Of course, there is oral tradition, um, which obviously presents certain challenges. There is the, um, the, the record of the bronzes themselves. Uh, I mean, of course, the, the, one of the most famous of the uh, groups of the Benin bronzes are, in fact, the, the, bra- the brass plaques, you know, the very well-known brass plaques, which once uh, adorned the Oba's Palace in Benin, and they record in, in there are several hundred of these plaques, and they record much of Benin history in, of course, a you know very graphical artistic format, which requires a great deal of 
interpretation and, and so on to extract any history out of it. But but it is, besides covering uh, myth and legend and, and uh, you know, a great many fantastical beings and so on, it, it does contain a record of history. Um, so that that's you know one of the the ways of trying to to recapture the Benin side, and then and then of course there is the you know archaeological and and linguistic uh, sources as well. But but you're right in highlighting that big difficulty of the profound epistemological imbalance uh, in in the in what most historians would regard as the gold standard of evidence, that's to say, you know, a richly stocked bureaucratic record um, full of government documents, you know. Um, and I certainly found some notable cases of abuse of that epistemological brute force. Um I, I don't know if you recall chapter four of Blood and Bronze, where I write about a a, a, a British consul called George Ainsley, who is essentially unknown. I mean, in, in terms of you know the general perception, he, he's essentially unknown. Uh, whereas, in fact, he should be famous for his wrongdoing. You know, he should be a, a famous exemplar of colonial wrongdoing because of the atrocious uh, reign of terror that he conducted in what was then the Niger Coast Protectorate uh, between the, the end of 1889 and the beginning, well, the, the middle of 1891. Um, and he, he ran a reign of terror where he... Um, launched all kinds of military attacks on villages, uh, burnt down numerous houses of local people, attacked villages and burnt down villages. Uh, and even there was one case recorded in the documents where he, um, it's, it's a atrocious story, um, where he organized a, a gang rape of a local woman. Truly, truly horrible um, incident, and we know about it because it was subsequently investigated by British officials. But what was most shocking was that even though they had a bulging file full of sworn statements from witnesses, uh, a very carefully compiled. Um, materials uh, put together by Vice Consul Roberts, even though that detailed record of Ainsley's wrongdoing existed, the British officials in the Foreign Office, they decided to retire Ainsley quietly and give him a pension rather than see him punished and prosecuted and risk uh, you know the the reputation of the British Empire. So that's a really that's a really important example of, as you said, both the like the changing of the record, but also an insight into what was actually happening in these practices and how incredibly one sided not just the record is, 
but also the actions that were taken and clearly allowed. Yes, ab- ab- absolutely, because the, the imbalance of force, access to force, was also extreme, of course. And, and, and we do see in, in the 1880s into the 1890s, we do see that shift in terms of the, the balance of power between the Brits on the ground and the local people. We, we actually do see that shift. Like take, for example, in, in, in the 1860s, in the 1870s, as Britain was gradually becoming more committed to uh, this area, I mean, to the, the Niger Delta region, um, as it was being sort of gradually drawn more on land, we see a shift in power. Uh, we see a shift in the capacity of the, the British officials to exercise force. Whereas at an earlier stage, you know, let's say in sort of 1860s into the 1870s, the British consul in the region has access to force and that he can call on, you know, Royal Navy gunboats. He can, you know, with some effort, he can summon military force, but it's at some distance, you know, so he is he's in a, a slightly more delicate um, relationship with local powers, where it's more about him um, talking his way into getting what he wants, uh, and then certainly by the uh, the late eighteen eighties and definitely into the eighteen nineties, we see a much more one sided uh, relationship where all the the weight of force is on the side of the British. And certainly, of course, by the the time of the invasion of Benin in 1897, the the conduct of that campaign was essentially a matter of logistics. You know, I mean, there was no question of the ultimate outcome. You know, it was more about how the the British forces could effectively. Uh, organize their transport and communications to you know to, to get to Benin and back before too many of them started um, dropping with malaria. So let's before we get into more of the details of this um, because I think it re- is really interesting and also indicative. Um, let's sort of look at the bigger picture because uh, you do uh, frame this in your book quite helpfully. Why? Kind of what were the British doing in this area um, before we get to the point of the invasion, um, and why, and why, and how did their goals sort of change? Um, because it's not like they suddenly turn up in the 1890s. Um, British colonialism has been a thing in West Africa, so why does it suddenly go? Okay, actually, violent invasion—that's really what we want now. Yes, indeed, uh, and you're absolutely right in the. I, I felt it was crucially important to put all of that context in the book, precisely so that one can evaluate the invasion of Benin in that context, rather than in the way that too many empire apologists want us to evaluate it, which is as if the... Uh, invasion of Benin is, in fact, a, a justifiable response to the uh, the death of James Phillips and and his party at the very beginning of eighteen ninety seven. 
You know, that's how it's typically presented, you know, in, in um, recent decades, you know, going back some way, it's presented as a response to the, the death of a British official and as if it is therefore somehow justified. So what I felt was essential was to properly explain why this British official was knocking about, you know, in 1897, you know, why he came to be there. Um, and that I felt that, that context is all essential to properly judge the moral claims that empire nostalgists uh, still make, you know, which is the, well, there were good things about empire. We were there spreading civilization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we, we have to uh, evaluate the the presence of the Niger Coast Protectorate, which is the 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 entity within the British Empire that invaded uh, the Kingdom of Benin. We have to um, examine the moral claims that were being made for the existence of the British presence in West Africa. I felt, and of course, for many centuries, in fact, the principal reason for the British interest in West Africa was, frankly, a slave trade. Of course, as all too many British people seem happy to forget that Britain was, uh, for quite some time, the number one slave trading nation. Um, so our original sin in West Africa was, of, of course, the slave trade. Uh, and then from the early 19th century, when Britain finally got around to outlawing the the trade in slaves, although not the uh, not the institution of slavery itself in 1807, from that point onwards, there is a switch to the so-called legitimate trade, which essentially means palm oil. So from the same areas from which slaves had been uh, kidnapped uh, in previous decades, the the same companies and the same middlemen on shore, and you know, the, the, essentially the slave industry switches over pretty swiftly to palm oil. And for quite a few decades, you know, the, the first half of the nineteenth uh, century, the the principal British interest in the Niger Delta was extracting palm oil. And for much of that time, well, for most of the, the first half of the 19th century, Britain was able to do that satisfactorily, I mean, i.e. In, in, profitably, without going to the trouble and expense of formal rule. You know, um, it was able to, because of its naval strength, because of the, uh, you know, the, the competitive... Uh, position of its companies and and so on. Britain was able to to get what it wanted out of the Niger Delta, without really uh, going on shore much. That changed from the especially from the eighteen uh, seventies onwards, but even as early as the eighteen fifties, there was increasing uh, rivalry with other European powers, with, with the commercial firms from from France and then gradually from Germany, uh, as well as other powers, the Belgians and so on. Um, 
and so it was really a, a, a reflection of growing European rivalry and at the same time, frankly, growing British weakness that, that led eventually to, of course, the, the famous uh, scramble for Africa, the, the central event of which was, uh, of course, the, the, the conference in Berlin. Uh, in late 1884 into early 1885. And the mere fact that the Conference of Berlin happened is a striking illustration of British weakness, you know, an illustration of British decline, because this meant that Britain was turning up to a conference called, of course, by another power, it was called by Bismarck. And that meant that Britain was turning up to plead its case, uh, Britain turned up with a with an agenda to make a, a claim as the the paramount power on the Niger River. That was its agenda. If you look at the the Foreign Office documentation in a, in the in uh, advance of the uh, the conference, that's the key point of discussion. How how can we most effectively demonstrate our uh, our claim to be the the, uh, the the dominant power on the Niger River, but of course, thirty years before that, it would have been unthinkable that Britain would have to go to a conference and and meet other powers as an equal and plead its case. You know, so it's it's quite a striking illustration of um, British decline. So. How then does this lead to kind of the fact that Britain has to stake its claim in some sort of way? Um, but obviously they've been there for a while. There's quite a lot of economic claim. How does this then translate into the need for military action? Yes. So one of the big outcomes of the the Congress, the, the, the Conference of Berlin, was this principle of um, effective occupation. So Britain felt in the wake of the Berlin Conference, it felt that it had to establish a claim, a formal claim on the Niger Delta and the, and, and the, the, the Niger River. So it declared a protectorate. In 1885, it declared a protectorate over the Niger. Well, it, in fact, what we now know as Nigeria. Um, but the principle of effective occupation, which came out of the Berlin Conference, meant that the the mere declaration of a protectorate was no longer enough. It, it had to be embodied in some way, meaning um, boots on the ground in some form. So the, the principle of effective occupation was left helpfully vague in Berlin. You know, so countries could interpret it however they felt best but it, it meant that britain had to uh, ha had to make it a reality in some way otherwise they would risk losing out to to the to the french or to the germans um, as they grew in capacities around west africa so that was one of the the factors drawing britain uh, on land and inland uh, it, it it was obliged to, to to show boots on the ground, essentially. Right, and that makes, unfortunately, rather a lot of sense. Um, 
so then moving, obviously, because you can't have a conflict without at least two sides. So <laughs> at this point, um, tell us about the kingdom of Benin, sort of how they were governed, um, and particularly sort of, we've already talked about the bronzes. Um, and there's quite a lot of religious and political symbolism sort of wrapped up in the bronzes, or at least documented in the bronzes structures that existed. Um, so tell us a little bit about this kingdom at this point in time. Sure. If I may just say, first of all, that the the initial British engagement with uh, the polities on shore was with the series of uh, city-states and, and small chiefdoms and kingdoms along the the Niger Delta uh, the coastal area. So with um, Old Calabar, with Opobo, with, with Brass, and so on. Um, so the, the British engagement with, um, with these polities happened first, and it was only once they were, essentially once they were properly integrated into the British system, which is a polite way of saying effectively conquered, uh, it was only once the, the coastal regions had been absorbed into the, the British system um, effectively that the British then were looking into the interior and it was quite obvious that the only remaining significant rival uh, centre of power was the Kingdom of Benin. And, of course, the Kingdom of Benin was very old. It had been, uh, I mean, obviously different uh, authorities will have a different view on precise timings and so on, but it had been uh, in existence certainly for uh, between four and 500 years. I mean, the, the earliest bronzes date to the 15th century. Um, some of the brass plaques have, were cast from certainly in the uh, 16th century and into the 17th century. And the high point of brass casting uh, was probably in the uh, in the early 17th century. So th- this is a very old established kingdom. It it was no longer as powerful as it had been. I mean, it, it had shrunk in uh, in its claims of exercising power over even up to the the coastal regions of uh, the Lower Benin River, um, e- even over um, Brass and and other chiefdoms and and kingdoms that had since become independent. So it was no longer as powerful as it had been, but this is a a very firmly established, uh, very old kingdom and very old kingship, um, which had once been an imperial power itself um, and had been through several cycles of civil war and so on. So it was no longer as powerful, but was still easily the most significant uh, rival power in what is now southern Nigeria. So that meant for the British, it was an, an obvious obstacle. And the logic of empire meant that it would have to be absorbed into the British system. Uh, otherwise, the British would no longer be able to show the effective occupation that they needed to. So having declared a protectorate over uh, the region, which, as far as they were concerned, as far as the British were concerned, included the Kingdom of Benin. In you know, it, I mean, it didn't mean anything on the ground, but in in their minds, the Protectorate declared in eighteen eighty five included the Kingdom of Benin. Um, inevitably, at some point, 
that would have to be made into a in, into a reality. So in eighteen ninety, so, so then tell us about there is this logic, but there is there has to be some kind of pretext or attempted justification. And you mentioned at the beginning that that justification is often presented without context. But what actually was it? Yeah. So in eighteen ninety two. A mission visits Benin City. This is under a captain at the time, Captain Galway, who is a, a British officer, I mean, an army officer, but he's serving as a vice consul in the, in the reorganized Niger Coast Protectorate. And he is sent up the Benin River um, to Benin City, where he meets with Oba Oban Ramwin. And he signs a treaty, <laughs> which is... I mean, I can't help laughing when I think about this treaty because this is literally a pro forma treaty. I mean, it's a form that was pre-printed and had this is the, the standard form that um, British officials would re- would use around the uh, the Niger Coast Protectorate with any chief or king that they encountered. They would pull out this form, and the British official would simply write in the name of the chief or king, uh, the name of his chiefdom or kingdom, and then get them to sign it. I mean, it was a, a completely standard pre-printed form. Um, now, obviously, to be regarded as genuine, surely uh, a treaty ought to be the outcome of negotiation and reflect the interests and preferences of both sides. In a treaty which is simply a pro forma treaty, I think you know one has to be skeptical about whether it accurately uh, reflects the interests and preferences of both sides. To put it mildly, um, and also in the the treaty signed between Captain Galway and the Oba of Benin in 1892, it's striking that there are four people and three languages involved in what is supposedly a a negotiation between Captain Galway and the Ober of Benin. So Captain Galway spoke to his, would you believe, his manservant, Ajay, in English. Ajay spoke to a, a Benin official in, in Yoruba, in Akuri, which is a, a dialect of Yoruba. And then the Benin official spoke to the king in Edo, the language of the kingdom of Benin. So that, that meant there were four people and three languages involved, meaning surely enormous scope for misunderstanding or you know, failure to adequately communicate the intricacies of you know, terms of the treaty and so on. And also significantly, if you look at the the treaty itself, I mean, of course, I've seen the the original. We see from his sworn statement, which is the standard statement that um, interpreters would add to these treaties, uh, they would write a sentence saying, "I promise I have interpreted this um, accurately," and we can see from that sentence that a J has signed with an X meaning, of course, that he was illiterate. Now, that's not unusual in, in, in the context, but it does mean that clearly he's not an educated person 
um, perhaps not there, therefore armed adequately with, you know, the understanding of European diplomacy and what the British actually meant by the words like, you know, protectorate and so on. So the, this treaty that they signed, it's full of problems. Um, and it's quite likely, I think, that Oba Oba Ramwin signed this piece of paper under the impression that it was something more like a, a treaty of friendship, you know, a, an, a, an agreement to be nice to each other, rather than what the British understood this treaty to mean, which was essentially that he was handing over his kingdom. So the way the, the, the British worked at the time was that once they had secured this uh, piece of paper, as far as they were concerned, the Kingdom of Benin was part of the British Empire, and that meant that uh, British uh, commerce would have free access to uh, the, the Benin markets, you know, the, i.e., without paying duty, you know, without paying tolls, etc. Uh, and of course, that was the key goal, you know, to to extract economic advantage from the wealthy territory of the Kingdom of Benin. So. That's the sort of justification that the British have always in their back pocket. Uh, and whenever they have a problem with uh, the, the Kingdom of Benin not giving free access to British traders and, and so on, this is the piece of paper that they can wave around um, and use to threaten uh, an invasion or threaten some kind of um, violent action against the king. So that interior penetration, that forward movement was going to happen at some point. Um, and I mean, that not that, that misunderstanding, I think, between the king and the British officials notwithstanding, it was going to happen at some point that the British would have to make that forward movement to absorb the Kingdom of Benin more firmly in its um, economic orbit. But the eventual timing was, in fact, a, a matter of accident. And, and the timing was really determined by Consul James Phillips blundering his way uh, to an early death by visiting the, the city of, or, or attempting to visit the city of Benin without permission. So it was really it was really an accident that determined the, the the eventual timing. And some of the elements of this accident are just really quite hard to wrap my head around. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to sort of explain them because, as I understand it, he was a relatively minor official. Well, he he was an official, but he wasn't necessarily the person in charge. Um, and he decides to go visit the city that has already been established amongst British officialdom that there is a particular procedure one follows to visit the city. You have to wait for permission. It takes a few days, etc. Like this isn't the first time this has happened, and in fact, on his way there, he gets warnings that hey, this is the procedure. Remember, this is what you need to do. Um, multiple warnings. So, and yet he and and then threats, and yet he continues anyway. And again, there's no and there doesn't seem to be any particular like desperate need that he has to get to the city on this day for some reason so why in the face of 
completely united opposition, including from some of his own people who are like, this isn't how we do things. Um, why does this Phillips persist? Absolutely. The, into an early grave. Absolutely. This was a, a fascinating area to look at in and, and reconstructing those those sort of few weeks where all of this was happening putting all that together was a fascinating process because it is on the face of it it's so ridiculous i mean it's so absurd so the way the way it happened was that um phillips in the the summer of 1896 is appointed as deputy commissioner uh, and uh, i mean he's essentially appointed as the the new deputy to the consul general so he's intended to be uh, the number two in the the Niger Coast Protectorate, um, who, uh, and you know he's there really to cover the absences of the Consul General during periods of leave or or whatever. So he arrives in uh, the uh, the Protectorate. Would you believe on October the twenty first? And then writes a, a despatch to London on November the sixteenth, asking for permission to invade the Kingdom of Benin. I mean, which is just deranged. I mean, he he'd been in the Protectorate for three weeks, had not visited Benin, and yet he was already decided on invading the uh, <laughs> invading the kingdom and deposing the king i mean it, it's unhinged i am will I'll, I'll come to why he may have reached that conclusion in a moment if i may but just this, firstly the sequence of events is that he wrote this despatch and of course despatches travel by steamship uh, in 1897 you know they uh, sorry 1896 they you know it takes about 3 weeks or so uh, to get to London, and obviously has to, you know, a reply has to get back, etc. So by the end of December, he still hasn't received a, a reply from London. So he decided to visit Benin with an unarmed mission. So he hadn't. I, I think his thinking was clearly that, well, I haven't got permission to launch an invasion. So why don't I go and visit with an unarmed expedition? So he, he puts together an expedition and, and sets off at the end of uh, December 1896. And, and of course, he has to sail around the Delta and, and so on and so forth. So it, it's, um, it's the early, it's the first week of January before he gets to, um, uh, to, to the Benin River and goes up to Guato Creek. Uh, and then from Guato, He's, he starts marching off to visit Benin, uh, and it's there, just outside Guato, that he is ambushed by uh, Benin armed forces, and he and most of, um, well, in fact, seven members of, seven British officials are, are killed, along with an unknown number of carriers, probably something in the region of about 200 carriers. Now, all the way from Old Calabar to Guato, as we mentioned, everybody was telling Phillips not to go. He had messengers from the Oba saying, you know, I can't see you now because I'm 
conducting ritual obligations for my father. So, you know, you please come in X number of weeks, you know, come, come in two months' time, something like that. His own staff, you know, are saying, you know, don't go. This is not how things should be done. You know, we need permission. We... Um, we should wait for a while and, and go when the king says it's okay. And, you know, um, and then local chiefs. So the um, Itsukiri chiefs who are uh, working with the British, they are also saying, don't go. And in fact, one of them tells Phillips straight out, don't go, it will be certain death. But Phillips ignores all of these um, and insists on continuing. Which, of course, as you say, makes us ask why. You know, why on earth would he would he insist on doing this when it's obviously going to be a failure? Um, my conclusion finally was that he wanted the mission to fail because if he was turned back by the Benin officials in the British mindset of the time, especially because Benin had signed this ridiculous treaty, if he had been turned back, that would have been the perfect rationale for an invasion. And and he would force London's hand by obliging them to give him permission to invade the country. So he, I, I think he was clearly expecting the uh, the visit to fail, it's just he wasn't expecting to be killed. You know, he was expecting to be turned away. That makes some sense. I still think he's perhaps not the cleverest diplomat, um, but that does seem to be the general trend of who ended up getting posted to West Africa. Well, I, but I, actually, that w- what you've just touched on is, I think, the key to all of this. Because, I mean, I, I think that that what I sketched out is clearly his, well, thinking, to put it, you know, to, to use that word loosely. Um, but I think it's a key uh, point that Phillips was, in fact, very dim. And I'm, I'm not, this isn't my assessment of him based on what I know about his behavior. I have hard documentary evidence that he was really quite dim. Um, and that is, um, I found, he, he went to Uppingham School, boarding school in the north of England, and I found it. Well, their archiv—they have a school archivist who very helpfully gave me some quite remarkable materials from the school magazine that was published uh, in the in the wake of the, the the death of Phillips in January 1897. And of course, this this is a school magazine trying its best to be nice about an old boy who had, after all, just, as they see it, died gloriously on the frontier of empire, etc., you know. Uh, But when they wrote an obituary for Phillips, it's quite shocking how how they damn him with faint praise. You know, they're trying their best to find something nice to say about him. Um, But the best they can do... Shall I read out just a, a couple of lines for what they say? Yes, please. It definitely falls into the category of damning with faint praise. Well, it, it really does. I mean, I, I just find it so extraordinary 
Um, but this this is an actual quotation from the um, Uppingham School magazine. And, and as I say, they're trying to be nice about him, but the best they can do is, quote, he was not head and shoulders above the rest of us in anything, except perhaps that priceless thing which we call keenness. He was not a first-rank scholar. He was not a first-rank athlete. He never wrote anything brilliant for this magazine. <laughs> and and the, the best they can find, that the highest praise that they can find for him was that he was, quote, a sportsman. So exactly the person that you want charging in headfirst into a situation that requires a number of different skills, which we can tell from his own school he did not have. Ab- absolutely. I mean, he, he absolutely did not have, uh, you know, the reflection or, you know, the, the, the appreciation of subtleties to, you know, to think about, um, you know, how, 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 yes, exactly, but how, how things might actually work out. And I, I think it's, so I think his stupidity, frankly, was an important part of um, of this this whole fiasco, and particularly that Phillips arrived in the the NITA, uh, Coast Protectorate in the summer of eighteen ninety six into an atmosphere of forward movement. You know the 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 widely agreed mission of the officers of the protectorate was interior penetration. You know, that that's what they had absorbed as their raison d'etre. So he didn't need to create much momentum. Everything was going that way anyway. Uh, no, absolutely. And I think given his lack of intelligence and, and you know, his desire to be, you know, one of the fellows, you know, one of the, you know, what he wanted to be on the team. Uh, you know, and as as um, his own school magazine said, you know, his his salient characteristic was his keenness. You know, <laughs> so you know, if if his enthusiasm was his dominant characteristic, and you know, you you can just see how this all added up to him, you know, blundering his way into an early death because, of course, he it, it obviously didn't expect to be killed, but he felt. I gather from the way he wrote about this and uh, you know everything that we know about him, I think he felt as if, as a, an officer of the empire, he could do whatever he wanted. Right. You know? And there was an idea of he was purposely trying to be provocative, just not enough to get himself killed, which yes, didn't I mean, quite work. Absolutely. I mean, he was clearly expecting to be turned back. Um, so, and just, so he then... This obviously doesn't work. He, he is killed... Um, on purpose, it's not like there's some sort of accident. Like he violates the rules, he is killed by it. Um, this is what really any polity would consider pretty reasonable. It's not like he wasn't warned. Um, but then, with this idea of forward movement of interior penetration, this is quite obviously a useful pretext for the British Empire to go, "Ah, oh, yeah, okay, we've been planning to do that anyway. Now let's go ahead and do it." Um, and as you talked about at the beginning it really does become an exercise of logistics, the kind of final outcome, you know, whether or not the British will win this battle is a foregone conclusion. But what happens? Absolutely. There's there's no question that, of course, this will ultimately um, lead to a a British victory. And the, the way that the expedition came together 
is in itself extremely interesting because what I found quite remarkable about the, the documentation passing between the Admiralty and the, uh, the Foreign Office in particular um, in the wake of Phillips being killed, what I found really extraordinary about, about all of those discussions is that there was basically no discussion of strategy there was no there was no debate about well, well what is the aim of this expedition and it's really because this was so completely a a, a standard procedure for the brits at this time they didn't really need to discuss what the goal was because it was you know it was a routine operation and it was led of course by the uh, Africa Squadron of the Royal Navy. So the the man in charge of the expedition was Admiral Rawson, or Rear Admiral Rawson, who was head of the uh, Africa Squadron, which is based in uh, South Africa at the Cape. And his role in in the Africa Squadron was really, as a, a, I call it, a, a kind of imperial fire brigade. So wherever around Africa, wherever. Britain needed to call upon the use of violence, you know, to, to subdue a troublesome, you know, a king or chief or whatever. They would call upon the Africa Squadron, which would go to the scene of the uh, action and perform its standard task, which was typically uh, a, a punitive expedition. So it was completely standard. And in fact, we can see quite extraordinarily how how much of a routine operating procedure it was in that the general orders that Admiral Rawson prepared for the Benin punitive expedition were cut and paste, literally cut and paste from the Ashanti expedition uh, mounted in, uh, in, of course, what is now Ghana um, by Wolseley in the 1870s. I mean, it's literally cut and paste. So there's basically no real need to talk about what the goal of the expedition was. It was quite obviously to, you know, to, to proceed to uh, the capital city of the, the what is now an enemy um, and absorb it more properly into the British um, the British sphere. Of course, as we say, the the task then is really more about logistics um, than fighting. And in fact, quite remarkably, the intelligence officer with the column, the, the, with the Benin punitive expedition, the intelligence officer was a, a chap called Commander Bacon, a, a Royal Navy officer called Commander Bacon. Uh, in his reports, quite remarkably, he admits that they basically didn't see I mean, didn't physically see enemy soldiers until Benin City because, of course, they're advancing through very dense uh, jungle. And given the imbalance between the forces, the Benin armed forces are limited essentially to attempting to ambush the advancing column. You know, so they're firing with their very antiquated muskets, I mean, literally muskets, you know, m- muzzle-loading, um, uh, uh, unrifled weapons dating literally from the 17th century. So they're limited to basically 
attempting to ambush the advancing British column with this very, very antique form of firepower. Uh, and given the the density of the the forest, Bacon says that they didn't see, they didn't set eyes on an enemy soldier until outside Benin City, which is quite remarkable, really. And unfortunately, it might be very satisfying for the next chapter of the book to be, but they were all defeated and fought off. Um, but that is not, in fact, what happens. Um, and for all the arrogance of the cutting and pasting and lack of clear intelligence, um, it was a foregone conclusion militarily, and the British do successfully sack the city. Um, so what happens to the kingdom of Benin after the capital city is destroyed? Sure. So it takes them about, um, let me see, it takes nine days of marching to go from the base camp that they established just off the Benin River. Uh, they march north for about nine days um, and, and take the city really very easily. Then the the city is burnt down. Um, they, it, it, in actual fact, the final conflagration where the palace, the the, the palace, burns down. That that was in fact an accident, and and we know this be, um, for, for certain because quite remarkably, I found a, uh, a an expenses claim by Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, who was a, a British officer who'd been sent out to command the uh, the Niger Coast Protectorate Force for the duration of the expedition, he had some of his belongings destroyed in the fire, which um, which broke out on the the twenty first of February, eighteen ninety seven, and I mean it, it's it's quite extraordinary that um, the of what this expenses claim tells us about the the style of life that a, a British army officer would expect while campaigning in the jungle in that <laughs> Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton uh, claimed for a camp bed, an umbrella, a cummerbund. Uh, he had silk and wool drawers and he had two pairs of pajamas. So if you think of, you know, the, the, the style of life that a, a British officer would expect on campaign. It's, it's quite remarkable. And anyway, the, the point is that that proves that the, the palace was burnt down by accident. But of course, we also know that if it hadn't been burnt down by accident, it, it would have... Uh, Moore, uh, Ralph Moore says he would have burnt it down. Anyway, so the city was destroyed. Of course, the biggest surprise for the the British when they arrived in the city is the discovery of the Benin bronzes. This was completely unexpected. They immediately pack up all of the Benin bronzes, which of course, the Benin bronzes is a a, a catch-all term which also includes um, artworks made in, in other materials, in, you know, including in a general sense the, the ivory carvings and, and so on. And, and even some wooden pieces. So when they found this extraordinary treasure, uh, all these incredibly rich artworks, they packed them up and, you know, they boxed them up and, and simply took them home because they had been hoping to find ivory in the palace. You know, they had, had vague rumours of lots of ivory being in the palace. And their intention was to take the ivory 
and sell it as a way of defraying the cost of the invasion. So the intention was that the invasion would pay for itself. So they didn't find the ivory in volume, but they found all these extraordinary artworks. So they packed them up, took them back to London and to auction them to raise money to to pay for the the invasion. Um, and then in terms of what happened to the kingdom, of course, that meant that the, the territory of the kingdom of Benin had suddenly been f- fully absorbed into uh, British structures. The the British put a, a new post, a, a vice consulate in, in the, the ruins of Benin City. Um, the Ober was, the Ober in fact escaped the, the occupation of the city, but was later um, taken into British custody in, in September 1897. And he lived in exile in Old Calabar uh, until the rest, uh, until he died uh, in 1914. And then his son succeeded to the, uh, to the kingship uh, and was back in the, the rebuilt Benin city, but of course, no longer as a sovereign ruler. I mean, he was now a kind of, you know, symbolic um, king with, with no real power. And, and that's, what, that's essentially the, the status of the, the, the kingdom of Benin in modern day Nigeria. You know, the, the, the king still exists. There is still an Oba, and he still has great significance for uh, the Edo people, but he is no longer vested with formal powers. You know. And yet the bronzes do continue to sort of have a life and a spotlight on them in a lot of ways um, up until the present day. And this in some ways sounds like a silly question because obviously in quite like on the face of it, the bronzes are spectacular for the detail of them and for the number of them, for the scale of things that they show. Um, but obviously with Empire at that point, there are lots of sort of shiny things coming in from all over the place. And yet the bronzes really you show kind of capture the imagination in a way um, pretty immediately and therefore sort of end up being desired objects by collectors, museums, etc. And, and of course, end up in the British Museum where they are now. So what do you think accounts for kind of their place in yeah, the imagination, yeah. I suppose? Yeah. Well, in the first place, as you say, it is a reflection of their extraordinary quality. I mean, the they're extremely beautifully... Made, I mean, through a uh, you know through the lost wax process, but the uh, the the casting is really exquisite. So it's a reflection of their extraordinary qualities, but it's also, I think, because of the surprise. It was quite shocking to all interested parties. I mean, to all you know curators and and so on, uh, that work of this kind would come out of. Black Africa, and we can see how shocking it was for the British Museum, for example, in the work of uh, the the two British Museum curators who were most involved with the the bronzes in the uh, in the early days. That's Dalton and Reed, and uh, they received uh, a great many of the bronzes in uh, in the autumn of eighteen ninety seven, and they wrote an article in 1898, which was their first stab at analyzing and trying to understand the this extraordinary body of, um, of work, 
and it it's absolutely bizarre really i mean you know we i mean we would look back on this now as being absolutely bizarre but the conclusion that they came to was bizarrely this is so extraordinary i mean that you know the, these artworks are so extraordinary they couldn't possibly have made been made in benin or they couldn't possibly have been made by the people of benin i mean it's it's a bizarre kind of logic but they were scrabbling around for explanations about how such sophisticated artwork could be made in somewhere like benin so they felt well it maybe maybe it was made by egyptians must have been egyptians or maybe the portuguese because obviously the portuguese had been on the the coast of west africa for you know for centuries so they're scrabbling around for some explanation as to how these extraordinary artworks could have come out of west africa um that it's you know it, it leads into really bizarre a bizarre kind of logic where it you know they, they decided that it couldn't possibly have, possibly have been the people of benin they redeem themselves a little bit however in uh, 1899 when they publish what became the standard work about the benin bronzes for many years they produced a uh, a, a very richly illustrated book about the Benin bronzes, and in that book, they they finally they admit that they were they 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 had been wrong, and that they these pieces are of Benin uh, um, manufacture, and you know that their initial scrabbling around for other sources of origin were were completely misguided. So they redeem themselves a little bit, but it's I, I think it's a reflection of the extraordinary surprise um, at this new, altogether new body of work coming out of um, West Africa, which really forced a rethink about African art and culture. You know, it, it, it really it, it forced, uh, you know, a, a complete reassessment of, um, you know, the, the, the qualities and the potential of African art. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and that's obviously a really good example that demonstrates this. That's exactly um, one of the things that was really captivating. Um, and speaking of surprises, uh, I know we've already sort of talked about a few things that certainly surprised me as a reader. And I can guess that they probably surprised you um, reading, for example, how little praised Phillips was by his own school. I'm sure was not what you were expecting. Um, but Given if, if you have maybe one other example of something that you came across during the process that surprised you um, and be willing to share a little bit of that kind of behind the scenes, um, we'd love to hear it. Sure. I, actually, two things immediately occur to me. Um, first of all, I touched very briefly on Consul Ainsley, George Ainsley, and his appalling wrongdoing um, in what is now Nigeria. Uh, finding all of that material was shocking. I mean, I'm, uh, and I would say that I'm fairly well versed in, well, I thought I was fairly well versed in colonial violence and so on. You know, I'm not a, I don't think I'm, I don't think I was going into this um, naive about the meaning of empire, but I was still really shocked to find this deeply unpleasant um, series of incidents sitting there in the, in the files. But what really shocked me was that I found indisputable written proof 
that the Prime Minister of the time, Lord Salisbury, knew about Ainsley's wrongdoing, knew about his orchestration of the gang rape of a, a woman who was notionally under his protection, and yet conspired with Foreign Office officials to pension Ainsley off and and to you know avoid any potential for um, spoiling the reputation of British officials. I mean, as, as I say, I don't think that I went into this naive about you know the the realities of empire, but that that still that kind of shocked me. You know, the fact that the the prime minister even would rather uh, pension this guy off than see justice done. You know, that that was or make any sort of acknowledgement. I mean, there's there's a lot you can do. For example, um, he can be dishonorably, you know, removed from his post and not get a state pension, Ab- even abso- if you don't make a big public case of it. Absolutely, there are, there, there are all sorts of things you can do. Um, but um, yes, he was uh, simply, you know, I mean, th- this file, of course, this file full of sworn statements about this guy's wrongdoing, you know, was just quietly parked in the Foreign Office files. And of course, you know, it it, it wouldn't be made public for several decades. And, you know, it was, um, yes, that, that was all pretty shocking. Uh, but then the other thing that surprised me was when I began work on this and began delving into the archives to, you know, look at the Foreign Office and the Admiralty archives for um, the, the details of the expedition, I was really surprised at how blatant the violence was and, and how casually it's recorded in the in the materials, you know, in, in the archives. I mean, there's no i mean very often there's no attempt to uh you know to obscure violence through euphemism well uh, there is uh, obviously constant use of the what i call the colonial lexicon of you know opening up or pacification and and other kind of euphemisms but what i found really surprising was explicit orders for example, from Admiral Rawson, as I mentioned, he's the he was the commander of the expedition. Explicit written orders from Admiral Rawson to one of his officers: you know, you will advance up such and such a creek to Guato, where you will destroy the town. <laughs> you know, and then a despatch coming back from Captain O'Callaghan saying. As instructed, I advanced up the creek to Guato, where I destroyed the town, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I mean, it was just the... very straightforward. Yes. No worries about diplomacy it's... there or anyone taking you to task for your actions. Absolutely, I just found that really surprising that it was so black and white. I mean, written down. You know, I did. I went there and destroyed the town. You know, um, and so it was the the casual um, approach to extraordinarily violent. Acts of collective punishment, you know. Th- this, these are not military targets, you know. These are, uh, you know, th- this is regular burnings of villages and um, wholesale destruction of towns, which is undeniably a war crime under the, um, obviously under the Nuremberg principles of the United Nations, but even under um, protocols acting at the time in 1897. 
Um, I mean, you know, this is this is extremely brutal collective punishment. Uh, so the the casual way that this um, extreme violence was doled out and was talked about between British officials was a big surprise for me. Fair enough. Um, it is very blunt. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. And and I and I I made an effort to capture that in in the book because what what I wanted to do in the book was I mean I I really made an effort to document everything you know minutely I mean it's all you know very very carefully footnoted and I quote as much as I can from the original documents because you know it's one thing for you know progressively minded kind of uh, writer to to make a case against empire but it's i think more powerful if you can put it in the words of you know the officials at the time you know so that well and we've in fact demonstrated that in this interview right of you saying phillips went and did this i'm like that seems really stupid why would he and you're like in fact (laughs) we have evidence that other people at the time who had vested reasons not to think he was stupid did in fact think he was quite done. So that's, I think, really, and then that no longer is our extrapolation a hundred something years later about, hmm, was this person clever? It's like, well, actually, we've got rather a lot of evidence from the time, you know, as close as we can get to suggest that this isn't some supposition in hindsight, um, that this actually was a thing. Yes, definitely. And, And that was, I mean, it was, an unpleasant task in some respects to go through all this, you know, masses and masses of documents because there are some very, very unpleasant things recorded in them. But it was very satisfying to take a, a kind of forensic approach to, you know, to, to putting it together from the original archives, you know, and, and reconstructing that. That That's, you know, as, as you know, for a historian, that's, Deeply, sat- deeply satisfying. <laughs> yes, yes, we yeah. do love finding the details in the archives. So thank you for sharing some of those with us in the interview. And obviously there's a lot more in the book. Um, but the book is now obviously out and listeners can go read it. So are you forensically are investigating something next? What are you working on now? Oh, sure. Well, I, actually what I'm working on now is a book about Empire Film. And in, in a way, this sort of grew out of my work on Benin because, as you may recall in the book, you know, I touch on some of the representations of the invasion of Benin in the, in the popular press, um, you know, how it was presented very much as, you know, the heroic Brits going off to avenge a, a wrong and, you know. So I, I became interested in how... The British Empire has been represented, and I, I think there's some very interesting work to be done in how the British Empire has been represented in film. You know, I mean, like take for example, I think there there is a an extraordinary number of British people who have formed their idea of the British Empire largely through repeated viewings of the film Zulu at Christmas. You know what I mean? You know, um, Someone should probably go investigate that. Right, because you know, if you think about the, the number of films that we have consumed in our lifetimes about either the British Empire 
or World War Two, because I think the way I look at it, I think in a way we as a nation we still celebrate World War Two. I mean, we over celebrate World War Two as a a way of quietly celebrating empire, you know, because I think the two have become conflated in in our sort of celebrations of um, you know the, the, the British past. Um, so I, I think we have to, you know, I, I think it's important, in fact, that you know we we rethink our idea of empire and World War Two through the the popular medium of you know film. Um, well, I'm sure yeah. there's a lot of good archives and details that you're going to uncover for us about that. Absolutely, that, they will be. That that, that is exciting. Um, but I, I must say, I will certainly be going back to uh, Nigeria and, and to British colonization of Nigeria. Um, you know, in in the in the future, because there's so much more to be done. Um, I mean, what what I did for Blood and Bronze, obviously, that's just one campaign. Um, you know the the British occupation of Nigeria obviously was a, a matter of decades, with a great many uh, so-called punitive expeditions or so-called patrols into the interior. So there's, there's a great deal uh, more to be uncovered, I think, and no doubt a great many more instances of wrongdoing that need to be exposed. Well. While um, you are off exposing wrongdoing and uncovering <laughs> details in film that cause us to question all sorts of interesting things, um, listeners can read your current book, which we've been discussing this episode, titled Blood and Bronze, The British Empire and the Sack of Benin, published by Hearst in 2022. Paddy Doherty, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Miranda, thank you for having me. And thanks very much for your interest.